My friends, if you would please stand with me. We want to read the scriptures today, reading the account of the prodigal son. Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Again, if you would listen now to the Lord's word. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This is the Lord's word. Amen. Would you please be seated, friends? Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word and pray that your blessing will be upon your people and upon your servant. And we pray that we will hear your word and that we might know you and rejoice in you all the more. We pray for your spirit's blessing, his presence with us. And I do pray, Lord, again, that you would cause the kingdom of Satan great injury. We thank you, O Lord, that you do work through the word. And we pray now that you would work mightily. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am sometimes really caught up with the way things used to be. You know, I'll get on 
uh, Amazon Prime sometimes and I will watch an episode of the Rockford Files just because I like seeing the old cars and of course the polyester pants and jackets and things like that. Um, I'm intrigued by things that, that were um, of decades ago that I used to be involved in. And in the 80s, there was a game called Pictionary. I don't know if you have all played Pictionary, right? It's, it's a, a challenge to everyone's artistic abilities. And one night, we, I think it was at Thanksgiving time, we had a raging game of Pictionary that was going two teams. The, the scores were very close, and it was actually my brother Aaron, the tiebreaker here, was going to be on his shoulders. And so he drew his card, he pulled it out of the deck, and he had to draw this thing. And he sat there. I mean, he was phenomenal at this game. He could draw anything, or at least he drew enough to let you know what the picture was supposed to be. And this time, he just drew a blank as he tried to draw. He goes, I, I don't know how to draw this thing. I, I'm drawing a blank. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. He goes, this is ridiculous. How could I not know this? And the word was fish. Fish. He goes, how can I not know how to draw fish? He goes, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. You see them in the grocery store. You see them in advertisement. Children draw these things, right? It's one line like this, and you draw a fish. He says, I don't know how to draw a fish. And he couldn't do it, and we ended up losing. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. But it, it struck me, some of the, sometimes the most common things in life are the very things that are the most difficult to define or to wrap our brains around. Something like love. We all know what love is, right? Define it. And you go, well, it's, it's like, um, well, you know, it's like that movie we saw. <laughs> and you start to try to define it, and you have a very difficult time because it's a, it's a profound thing. Love is a profound thing. How do you define it? What does it look like? especially when we consider the concept of God's love for the sinner. We speak of the Lord's love every Sunday in, in one manner or another. We sing hymns about it. We read it in the scriptures. We hear it preached. We pray about it. We thank the Lord for it. But it is a concept that is not easily comprehended. Paul wrote in Ephesians three fourteen through 19, saying this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The love of God for the sinner is a huge concept. And I dare say that every person here, even the oldest among us, is still working to wrap their brains around that concept and that we'll never fully understand it until we are with the Lord and glory. This morning we're looking at the prodigal son and the context of this parable can be found in verses 1 through 2. In fact, it's kind of interesting to me that he says in verse 3, so he told them this 
parable. It doesn't say he told them these parables. He just says he told them this parable. I'm inclined to believe that the the incident of the sheep and the incident of the coins just prior to the prodigal son are all part of the same parable. He's teaching a main lesson. He's teaching a very important message here. So in verses 1 through 2, we we were told this. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. In verses 3 through 7, we read this. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." It was a sheep. It wasn't a human. It was just a sheep. Just a sheep. Say that to a shepherd sometime. Say that to a rancher. It's just one. How does that feel? You go, what? Are you crazy? Do you know how much time and energy and money goes into just one cow? Do you know how much money and time and effort goes into one sheep? Maybe maybe more effort goes into a sheep. I don't know. Um, yes, says the rancher. Um, yes, more, more energy into the sheep. But he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost, concluding there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then in verses 8 through 10, listen again to this, to this um, illustration with the lost coin. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you see a theme there? This is not a handy man. It's not a, a mason, a bricklayer, a carpenter. This is a woman who has ten silver coins and she loses one of them in that day. How significant do you think that one, it's just one coin after all. It's just one coin. How many of you would feel if, if, if the stock market dropped just 10%? It's just 10%. Relax. You still got 90%. <laughs> you would be sick. 10% in one day? How are we going to live? How are we going to survive? This is the picture of this woman. She loses one silver coin, and so she sweeps the house. She looks until she finds it. Like the shepherd in the previous uh, um, illustration, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Concluding, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we come to this last uh, illustration of the prodigal son. Notice he says, and he said, and he said. Here these scribes and Pharisees, they are quite sympathetic with shepherds losing a sheep. 
And they're quite sympathetic with a woman losing one-tenth of her silver coins, one of her ten silver coins. We see that we are oftentimes much more sympathetic over animals and materials than we are over people, over image bearers, which are infinitely more important than sheep, infinitely more important than silver coins. Why? Why does Jesus receive sinners and why does he eat with them? It is a concept that is not easy for the Pharisees and the scribes to understand. Why? Seems pretty self-evident. The Pharisees were uh, this group that was created in order to promote righteousness. They cared about righteousness. God cares about righteousness. God himself cares about holiness. He's concerned about these things. Um, We ought to love what is right. We ought to hate what is wrong. Right? We should. But my friends, we're not interested in abstract righteousness and theoretical holiness. We're not interested in having beautiful homes that are swept clean and, and, and put in order, but are devoid of people and foot traffic. Rather, we want to have houses that are full of people and houses that are full of people who love the Lord and want to serve the Lord. Again, their accusation against Jesus is this. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. These sinners, these tax collectors, they came to Jesus to listen to him. Jesus is seeking them out. With his words, he is bringing them to a far-off country so that they may recognize their lostness, and so that they may come to repentance and faith. You understand, as before we go into this, this last aspect of this parable, that Jesus is the shepherd who was looking for the sheep. Jesus is like that woman sweeping her house. And Jesus is like that father that we read about who is waiting and looking for his strayed child. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Because, my friends, they're dead. They're dead. And again, they're not sheep, and they're not coins. They're people. People matter. Verses 11 through 16, again, listen to this. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together, together, gathered everything together, and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to, uh, anything to him. Here we have these two sons. And the second son, the second oldest, wants his inheritance now. Though typically not done, the father would have to sell off things or parcel out things. 
Um, the son, it, it's a way of saying when he says, give me, give me my inheritance now, he might as well have said, flowers in hand, Dad, when are you going to die? I'd really be glad if you could just keep, kick over and, uh, and, and just give me my inheritance now. There's a spiritual problem here. There's a spiritual problem in this son. He's living and he's got this wonderful life, this father that loves him. He has no appreciation for the love the father has for him. All he can see is that you are keeping me from the good life. You are keeping me from my best life now, dad. I read it in this book. I want my inheritance. He would get a third. Uh, 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 he would get about a third of the inheritance. You understand this, this, uh, this young man... He's in a desperate spiritual condition to even think like this, to speak like this, to do this. He's rejecting his father, and he's wanting to go and pursue the world. I read, as I was reading it, you notice how many times Jesus brings up this distant country, this country, this country. I want some other place other than where I am. I want to get as far away from you as I possibly can so I can go spend my money and live my life however I want without you telling me what I must do. So he goes. He goes off and the parable says he squanders his estate with loose living. The son actually says he has squandered it with prostitutes. You can imagine what young men would get involved in. And at the time he runs out of money, famine strikes the land and has left him now with no money and no food. And now he had to attach himself to a citizen of that country who in return sends him out to feed the pigs, which are unclean. So here he is, hungry, desirous, uh, even to eat pig food, this gelatinous, semi-sweet carob pods, and there's nobody there to look after him. There is nobody to feed him. There is nobody to care for him. He has just rejected everything that was good because he thought that life existed far away from dad as I could possibly get. He, he rejects it all and says, give it to me now. No offense, dad. You've been great. It's been real, but I'm out of here. And he leaves and he goes off into this distant country and as he pursues his flesh, you find out he's more and more miserable. Young men, listen to me. This is true. The temptations are, oh, your parents are so mean. My mother-in-law had a, a, a plaque on her wall or a framed thing that said, meanest mother in the world, and you read it and you go, sounds like a pretty excellent mom in my opinion, and she was. But when you're a teenager and you think they're just trying to keep you from life, right? And you find out later when you have your own children, oh, I guess they were trying to keep me from killing myself or someone else. But this is his attitude. He's spiritually dead, but he's living under this, in this wonderful environment. Friends, uh, sin is certainly pleasurable for a season. And the world calls us to it every day to come and leave behind what we know is right to rebel against and remove ourselves out from underneath the care of the Father. And this is a real problem in the church. 
It's a real problem for our young people. They are being tempted to think that my parents make me go to church and it's just so inconvenient and it's so bothersome and all of these things when actually they're taking you to a place where you will find life if you will be smart enough to listen to what they're telling you. But don't mistake the call of the world. The world is no lover of your soul, just like the woman in Proverbs, the adulterous woman. She would reduce the the naive to a loaf of bread, and she would lead you like an ox to the slaughter. She will not care for you. She will not love you until everything you have to be spent on her is spent. And like a fly in a spider's web, she sucks you dry of your life. My friends, this is the world. That's what the world does. And we are shown this young man's destitute condition. Again, no money, no friends. He has to attach himself to a citizen. He's working with swine. No food. And no one there to give him anything. We must be very careful not to believe that the world has it so good. Wonderful um, video this past week, Tucker Carlson. I don't say this often, but I thought he certainly summarized things in light of this shooting in Nashville. And he posits the question, why would the transgender community hate Christianity so much? He goes, well, of course, it's easy. Uh, They have completely opposite messages. Carlson said that one of the most famous lines of any hymn in the Christian church is, Amazing Grace, How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Christians will tell you all day long what wretches they are. And they have no ability to change themselves. They have no ability to save themselves. He goes, but the transgender community, what do they say? They say, we make ourselves. We go against God. We go against what God says. And we determine what reality is. And no one's going to tell us opposite. He goes, they're completely opposite worldviews. That's why you have such conflict. And this is the struggle that the church faces. Will we listen to the world and the lies of the devil, or will we listen to the word of God and believe what it says? This young man said, Dad, give it all to me. I'm sick of this stuff. You let me go, and I'm going to go strike out on my own. And the world cries to us, friends, saying, you don't need God. You don't need Jesus Christ. You don't need his word. You understand he's just there to keep you there. Those Christians are just there to keep you from fun. Which is nuts. You're battling venereal diseases and your body is covered with blisters. Sounds like fun to me. Waking up with a hangover again. Because you bought the world that it's great when you just can grab another bud. Bud. And our lives are miserable. And this is the world. This is what the world says. This man has bought into these things. And now he is quite destitute. My friends, this condition that we see in the world, it's a very, very difficult thing. We don't want to become embittered towards the world. It's really difficult not to watch what happened this past week in the news and not to become Um, terribly angry, even a fit of rage. And that's where we have to be careful 
because we know that they're acting out of their beliefs. They do not deserve our scorn, rather they deserve our sorrow and our pity because they have believed the lie, Satan's lie, that they could be like God and control their own lives. Why does Jesus take pity? Why does he eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors and these sorts of people? Certainly Jesus should know what kind of people they were, right? Of course he does. But listen to what he says now. Though they were dead, now they're alive. Listen to verses 17 through the first half of 20. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. It's a beautiful thing. As it is with you, um, this common thread with Every genuine Christian testimony, there is an awakening. This man has an awakening. Again, the first scene is that I've just rejected my dad, took my inheritance, spent it all on loose living. Now I'm hungry, I'm poor, and I'm feeding pigs. Even the pigs eat better than I do. And then he says in 17, but when he came to his senses... He came to his senses. It dawns on him that this world is empty. It is empty. He's hungry and broke, and no one loves him. We could say this is the doctrine of effectual calling. Something in this man has snapped. Something has awakened in him, and he says, what am I doing? What am I doing? This is craziness. He can go home and be at least a hired hand to earn some bread to eat. So he determines he will go home to his father, confess his sin against heaven, that is against God, and against, uh, against his father, and admit his own unworthiness, and apply for a hired position. Most, sadly, will never come to this point, but few will. This is, my friends, conversion that takes place. This young man owned up to his sin, realized that he alone was to blame for the wretched state he was in. He did not offer excuses such as, well, I'm only human. You can't expect me to not be human. He didn't blame his upbringing. He didn't blame society that dealt him somehow a, a raw deal, or as we hear so often, God made me like this. And so this is my excuse for why he doesn't do any of these things. There is this sweet and wonderful realization. His eyes are open And this realization has caused him to see that the worldly system is hollow, it is void of any good or lasting value. But but my father, what a different story. My father's servants have more than enough food to eat. What am I doing? What was I thinking? Why was I thinking that life would be found outside of my father's home in some foreign land? So it is with genuine conversions, my friend, with faith and repentance. A genuine conversion consists of being empty of self or trust in this world 
There is a brokenness of owning up to sin, your sin, no excuses, your own unworthiness, and it is a turning to God. Sometimes I forget which illustrations I give you. All the illustrations, I never use books because I don't like using books to tell someone else's illustrations. Um, But I've lived a relatively sheltered life, so I bring up Jeffrey Dahmer periodically because it shocks you and it helps you know that I actually grew up in a, a real town Jeffrey Dahmer grew up in my hometown, uh, the infamous cannibal. I sat next to his little brother in, in home, home room, and um, I watched with amazement these interviews with Jeffrey Dahmer prior to his death. And the air of credibility, it was alleged that he'd become a Christian prior to dying. I'm inclined to believe it. And you know why? Because he said these words, I have nobody to blame for what I've done except myself. And that was the air in my ears. That was the air of credibility that this man was genuinely converted. I'm not saying we should pass over sin or destructive destructive, uh, acts uh, glibly. But people who say that Jeffrey Dahmer was just beyond being saved. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth of the gospel. In fact, what sin is there that's so big that Jesus Christ can't forgive? And I'm serious when I say this, because we, we, we think to ourselves, we live, we live in denial oftentimes by saying, well, I didn't really do this or that. And the sins that I do commit are, well, you know, they're the, the acceptable kind. But friends, there are no acceptable sins before the Lord. There are no acceptable sins. What what is able to set you free? But a realization of, of who you are in truth. This man, this young man, came to his senses and said, I have really screwed up. I have done bad. I am unworthy. I deserve everything I've gotten. He has no, no uh, secret tricks up his sleeve. He has no, no cards he's going to play to convince his father. Well, you know, I am your, your heir, right? I am your flesh and blood. He doesn't say anything. Doesn't even expect anything. He is completely broken. It is not, friends, what comes before conversion that matters, what has happened before conversion, but that conversion happens a man and a woman must be born again in order to be saved when Jeffrey Dahmer says I have no one to blame but myself this son like Dahmer came empty of himself with nothing in his hands to recommend himself to God you see that's the Christian I have nothing nothing Not a, I've tried. Not a, I was baptized. Not a, I stayed away from drugs. I went through the 60s and I never took LSD. Nothing. I have nothing. Many so-called testimonies come and are simply about themselves and their good decisions for the Lord. They recount their efforts on behalf of the Lord and their accomplishments for Jesus, but not this boy. Not this son. 
he once was dead and now was made alive. And notice what happens in 20 through 24. We read, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate It's a beautiful, I mean, just a beautiful story here that we read. He says, uh, uh, Father, this is what he's going to say to to his father. Father, I have sinned against him, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. And while we are told, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. You know what that tells me? That father was looking for his son. He was looking for him to come. Like the shepherd looking for his sheep. Like the woman who is sweeping her house and lighting a lamp looking for that silver coin. That father went out day after day after day and he would look, scan the horizon to see where is that boy? Where is that boy? And what does he do? He sees that boy. He sees his emaciated frame, his drawn face. How dare he come back here? Doesn't he know what I am and what I've done for him and he's rejected me like that? No, no. There's none of that, is there? He is looking for that boy to come. And when he sees him, he doesn't say to him, I told you so. No, he runs. He feels compassion from the innards like we talked about last week. And he ran to this boy, which older men would not do. He embraced him. That is, he fell upon his neck and he kissed him again and again. This father was delighted to see that boy who had rejected him, no doubt had hurt him, and yet when he finally came to his senses and came back, he was received. The son makes his statement just as he is rehearsing, and you notice that the father doesn't even let him get the words out. He doesn't even let him make his whole speech. He's like, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, a status symbol of position. Put sandals on his feet. He's not a slave. He's a free man. And kill the fattened calf. What? Who does things like that? He's the second child. He's typical of other second children. He's a brain in the neck. Why would you do this? This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found And they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. Do you understand, my friends, that the Father is so full of grace and love, so desirous to forgive you, 
if you would but come to your senses and come to him. He would forgive you. Admit your guilt and your shame. And what's beautiful here is he does not shame the boy. He does not make him a second-class citizen in the house. But he gives him position as a son, grants him authority with the ring, gives him freedom from bondage, and in place of sorrow, he gives feasting. My friends, the Father is eager to do this. This is the love of God for sinners. He does not simply tolerate those who come to him, accept you back with a cold shoulder, but loves and kisses full of compassion. You want to see how you define love? This is a picture of love. The love of a perfect and holy God who is not waiting to strike you dead but is patient so that you will not perish in your sin. This is a picture of patience. My friends, it does not matter what sin you have committed in the past. I know in the Lord's Church we make um, lists of sins that are acceptable and sins that are unacceptable. Transgenderism, can it be forgiven? Absolutely. Pedophilia, be forgiven? Absolutely. What about the ladies, statistically, who have had abortions who are sitting in here? Forgiven? Absolutely. Theft? Deceit? Greed? Adultery? Forgiven? Absolutely. That's the grace of God towards the sinner. He will forgive and he will receive and he will bring you into his family and he will make you a son. He will make you a daughter and he will forget your sins and he will remember them no more. No more. Now if this is how the Lord if this is how the Father rejoices over a repentant sinner why don't you? And that's the end of this picture. Verses 25 through 32. Now this older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was not dead, was dead rather, and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Now Jesus points out the older, more responsible brother who stayed home and did what was expected. Again, he hears all this fanfare, music and dancing. And rather than rejoice, he is angry. If you notice in verse 2, 
both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're grumbling. This isn't right, Jesus. Don't you know who they are? Don't you know what they deserve? Don't you know what you're doing? How you're making yourself look? He comes and he pleads with him. The father entreats him. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus loved. He'd given them the ordinances, the covenants, the blessings upon blessings. Christ came to them, but they, like this first son, were not broken. Question is, which son is better, the first or the second? Neither is better. One wants to get out of his father's house and live a riotous life. The other one lives in his father's house, we might even say, lives off the blessings of his father, and yet their hearts are cold, just like the other guy. It's the same sin. It's a a heart that's far from the Lord. It's not any better. But they trick themselves into thinking they're better than the other guy. This is what you see happening. They didn't love the Lord. They didn't love or delight in the Lord, but claimed worthiness to receive blessing instead of seeing their own need. My friends, this is how we are to understand why these scribes and Pharisees grumbled, why we have such trouble receiving and embracing others, and frankly, it is why we don't delight in the Lord. Oftentimes we become like this second, this first son. They thought too much too highly of their own efforts at keeping God's commands and much too little of the love of God for sinners. And they became intolerant of these others who made such poor decisions in life. Not that the father doesn't love both sons, but that they didn't see how precious the sinners were to the father. Why is he rejoicing, the father? Because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Again, the question is, why does this man receive sinners and eat with them? Again, in verse 1, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Jesus received them and eats with them as he is eating, as, uh, as he is the shepherd going after the one which was lost. Again, he is like the woman who lights her lamp and searches carefully for that one silver coin. He is also like that wise father, knowing their hearts are far away, and he turns them over. And I think that's a very interesting The father is asked for the inheritance, and he doesn't say, are you crazy? He says, okay. Because you know what? Before you can be found, you've got to know you're lost. And the son wisely saw that he was lost, and he became found. He goes to that distant country so that uh, he may recognize his lost condition and come back with his heart and see and experience and comprehend the love of God. The first son 
he doesn't see that, does he? Jesus eats and receives these people because they are lost in their sin, and he is there to hold out to them that I'm where life is found. So that they might come to him, and it will never happen unless he would go to them. They were listening, and he tells them his stories that reveal who he is. Who else was listening to the parable? Was this parable just for the tax collectors and sinners? It's not. In verse 3, we are told, so he told them this parable. The parable wasn't just for the sinners and tax collectors. The parable was also for the scribes and the Pharisees whose hearts were far from the Lord as well. They too were living in a distant land. They too were acting as if somehow they were more deserving and they didn't see the grace of God towards them in Christ. Jesus tells them this parable to show them that their hearts too were far from the Father and to expose their need, just like the tax collector and sinners. My friends, this is the love of the Father, this is the love of God, that he would seek out the sinners, that they too uh, might be able to comprehend with all the saints what the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The Father loves the sinner. He loves the sinner. And that sinner takes on many, wears many different hats. But we all have the same need, and that is of looking to Jesus Christ and resting in him. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word and pray that your grace will be upon it as it goes forward, that you would work in our hearts. Some of us this morning are living in a distant country. We've not yet run out of money. We've not yet experienced famine. We have not yet been relegated to feeding swine. We pray for these people, Father, that they would come to their senses and that they would come back to you who is ready and willing to receive them and to love them and to put a robe upon them and a ring on their hands and sandals on their feet. And some fathers sit in this place and still don't realize how unworthy they are too of the love of the Father. I pray too, Father, that as the Lord Jesus spoke to people on the full spectrum, uh, we pray that your gospel would affect the hearts of people fitting the whole spectrum in this place. Again, we thank you for your kindness to us and for your great patience. Father, I thank you uh, for your love for us, which is not a disinterested and cold love, but a warm and... Um, welcoming love that blesses. We ask that your blessing now be upon this and that it will be upon your people. I humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.